Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration, and information on writing, publishing options, and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint, and lots more information at thecreativepen.com. And that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 505 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 30th of August 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking to Len Edgeley from the Kindle Chronicles podcast whose show has been running a little longer than mine or around the same time we started anyway and we talk about why he saw something important in the Kindle back then as I did. I started when everything kicked off back then but we also talk how the publishing and tech industry has changed for readers, the subscription model which marches on and the change in devices over time. Now Len has actually interviewed Jeff Bezos several times. So we talk about uh, some of those interviews. We talk about the recent US Congress hearing around big tech, which is only really just starting off in terms of a discussion and has the potential for big ramifications for authors and publishers who want to sell online. We also talk about podcasting and generally geek out. as two quite tech-minded people and we've been right about some things, we've been wrong about some things and we just have a good old chat so you get to listen in and that is coming up in the interview. In publishing news and interesting things, Microsoft Word has a new transcription tool built in to the system for the online version Microsoft 365. It works with recorded audio and live speaking and can detect different speakers. There is obviously there's already a dictation option. Uh, There's a microphone option in the tool ribbon and you can click dictate or transcribe. Now, I think this is brilliant. I mean, I don't use Microsoft, (laughs) but I still I'm still using Dragon. I've actually recently got Dragon Anywhere on my phone because I want to dictate more when I'm out walking and not have it on a device that doesn't sync to the cloud. (laughs) So I have been using a handheld uh, little Sony device for years, but essentially when I'm out walking, and then I save it onto the device. If something happened to that device, I'd lose that. Whereas uh, with Dragon Anywhere, it was saved to Dropbox. So there's lots of options now. And the reason I wanted to mention this is because many people ask me all the time, what do I use? And I still use Dragon. But uh, Microsoft here, now you can upload an MP3. And I have been using Descript for this uh, podcast. But there are lots of options for AI transcription. Of course, it's not perfect, but the AI tools are getting better and better. So definitely have a look at that if you are a Microsoft 365 person. Then we will be talking about the idea of why subscription content is going to basically take over the digital world. But uh, Audible have launched Audible Plus. And I think this must be in anticipation of the Spotify maybe, maybe moving into audiobooks. But essentially, Audible Plus and Audible. So they've separated the exclusive audio content into its own plan with a cheaper subscription that doesn't include credits to download audiobooks outside the catalogue. So Audible Plus is the cheapest plan, giving subscribers access to Audible's collection of exclusive audio. So that will include podcasts and Audible exclusive audiobooks, I presume. There'll also be Audible Premium Plus, where subscribers will have all of that, but they'll also get the credit. Now, as far as I can see, 
it just is in the US right now, but I'm sure that will move into other places. But to me, this is definitely the onward march of subscription programs for digital audio, like we have seen with ebooks. Now, I don't think you can stop this move of subscription. I think this is just going to be part of what we have to do. What we can choose is which ones to participate in. And I obviously love the wide subscription models. So if you go, so let's say with Audible, there is a exclusive contract if you go through ACX and you can say yes I want to be exclusive but you can also go wide which is what I do and I now just use find away voices and to get my books into audible but all my recent ones are non-exclusive and I'm very happy with this I think and, and there's lots of subscription programs that find a way will put your book into but they're non-exclusive so I always want to make that distinction because many people mistakenly think that something like Kindle Unlimited means that, oh, well, all subscription programs are bad. But I think subscription programs are just part of the part of life. What is the difference is whether you're exclusive or not to one subscription program. So that's interesting. I mean, in other Amazon, this is really just talking about Amazon today. Uh, There's a lot of Amazon stuff. Obviously, uh, Len is into Kindle and we talk about Amazon from many different angles. But there also this week Amazon have opened up advertising for Canada and Australia. So you can now do ads in all the major English speaking markets, which is interesting, as well as obviously Italy, Germany, France as well as the US and the UK. So yeah, it's full on everyone spend lots of money on ads. <laughs> or not, as the case may be. But certainly they're opening up to more and more markets. So if you just go to your KDP dashboard, you can now do ads in other countries. And then I also wanted to mention, since we're, since this is an Amazon-tastic show, not strictly publishing, but there was a press release that came out about Amazon Halo, which is a $99 uh, US wearable band. And again, it looks like it's only in the US. And it says, We're using Amazon's deep expertise in artificial intelligence and machine learning to offer customers a new way to discover, adopt and maintain wellness habits. It's more than just the number of steps you take or the hours you sleep. It also includes lots of other things. Body fat measurements, which is interesting. I wear an Apple Watch and it doesn't include that. Now, this is what I picked up as well. The innovative tone feature uses machine learning to analyze energy and positivity in a customer's voice so they can better understand how they may sound to others, helping improve their communication and relationships. This is fascinating because as I'm talking to you now, I'm actually quite tired, but I am putting energy into my voice because I understand how voice energy works after doing this for years. I can project energy into my voice, even if I'm not feeling it so much, because I know that when you listen, I want you to feel that I'm energized. So I'm just admitting that to you. I mean, generally, I record in the mornings when I am energized. It's actually the after- Sunday afternoon after a long weekend with my family. <laughs> So I'm like, "Mm, not so energized. But this is fascinating to me. This is a, obviously, it's going to be listening to you the whole time. But talking about big data, this is incredible amount of data that this band is going to pick up from you. Now, I wear my Apple Watch every day. I love it. It's the first thing I put on in the morning. It's the last thing I take off at night. And I am completely aware that the machine, whatever you want to call it, 
is probably listening to me the entire time, but I am willing to take that for the benefits to my health, which I have found to be significant over the last year of wearing my watch. So this band is very interesting because it's a lot cheaper for a start. It's not a watch and it doesn't have all these other apps at the moment, but I would see this as their way into the wearable. But this tone feature fascinating because of course we talk a lot about audio on the show talk a lot about AI and voice if you imagine giving permission all the people who are going to give permission to this tone analyzer the amount of voice data they're going to pick up from this is massive so I think this is very very interesting and if you thought Amazon had enough data on you already well it looks like they are just getting started they will soon know far more about you than you do yourself if you wear this band but this is what the world we live in now is, as I said about my Apple Watch, I absolutely understand the data that I am licensing to Apple. And you, if you put this band on, you're going to have to understand how much data you're licensing to Amazon. You know, we, this is such a fascinating thing that we all have to decide. What are you willing to give up in order for the benefits that you get from these companies. And this is something that we're all personally struggling with in so many different ways all the time and has so many ramifications for our behaviour. So I want us to, in this episode as well, as, as obviously as I talk to Len and we debate various things, we have different opinions on a number of things, obviously. <laughs> but it's very interesting where we're going with this and I mean, maybe if you just think about your own behaviour, what personalization are you willing to, or what data are you willing to give up in order to get more and better personalization for your health and uh, for your life? So there's a, a quite a big question for you to think about at the moment. So, but it's not all about Amazon today, although it is primarily about Amazon. But there is an article about James Daunt, who runs Barnes & Noble in the US and Waterstones here in the UK. And sounds like he's interested in reviving the Nook. So as reported by the New Publishing Standards, among other publications... James Daunt showed little interest in ebooks back in 2011, saying, The computer screen is a terrible environment in which to select books. All that, if you read this, you'll like that. It's a dismal way to recommend books. I, I imagine he probably regrets saying that now. And last year, certainly Nook remained in limbo. Many of us thought it would be sold, maybe to Kobo, who knows. Uh, then the pandemic arrived. <laughs> And we've seen a massive growth in digital sales. And James Daunt said recently, I absolutely love Nook. And I think my predecessors had fallen out of love with it. It's underpromoted to our customers. It became the sort of wayward child that had become embarrassing. But if you want to read digitally, the app is fantastic. I'm a champion of digital books and digital book retailing which is interesting. But above and beyond that, I'm a champion of reading, which is absolutely true. There are many reasons why people want to read digitally, but Nook needs to be much better supported within the Barnes & Noble ecosystem. So this is fantastic. We all want more challenges in the ebook space. Apple and Kobo do a great job, but it's very hard to compete with the behemoth, certainly in the US, especially when you have the print ecosystem. Because remember, Kobo and Apple do ebooks and audiobooks, but they do not do print. If you want to have a challenger to the ebook, audiobook and print ecosystem, Barnes & Noble is pretty much the only possibility. So this is very interesting. And I very much supported Nook back in the day. I remember meeting the Nook team in London. It would have been 2014, probably, as Nook expanded 
globally. Then in 2015, they basically pulled out of the international stores to focus on the US. And in my mind, if you don't have an international focus as a digital retailer, you're not going to be successful over the long term because the growth is international, basically. you The market share is just open an open field in many countries of the world, but not in some of the established ones. So I basically, uh, I used to publish direct to Nook. And then when all that happened, I was like, if you're not going to even sell books in the UK, I just don't agree with what you're doing. So I went to draft the digital and Nook is a tiny, tiny, like minuscule part of my book sales. But this is interesting news and might make me more interested in Nook, uh, especially, I mean, all my books are on Nook in ebook and audiobook and print. But I've never really focused on advertising to Nook or anything like that. If James Daunt decides to push the Nook back into the international ecosystem, that is interesting to me. And uh, Waterstones, things are very different here in the UK to what they were in 2015. Waterstones, which is also owned by the same parent company, Elliott Management, that owns Barnes & Noble, they have done an extremely good job of email marketing since they took over Waterstones. So it used to be that I've been a Waterstones um, customer for many years. They used to have these little cardboard cards that you would get stamps on and they didn't have my email address they didn't have any data about me at all they didn't know what I was buying then as soon as Elliot took them over like literally within a couple of months they uh, issued us all with well you could choose obviously you could choose to get the electronic card for your points and it's good it's pretty good you get like every time you spend a certain amount you get 10 quid off maybe yeah anyway it's really it's well worth using the card. And so I use my card, I get I get it scanned, my points are tracked electronically, my loyalty points, and then I get emails from Waterstones a couple of times a week recommending me books. So if they had, and I've actually emailed Waterstones before and said, why will you not recommend ebooks as part of your email? Because I would happily click on your link, you know, maybe in order to make them some uh, affiliate money or something. So uh, this is very, very interesting. I, fingers crossed that James Daunt will revive the nook. We shall see. So in personal news, I am still working away at Tree of Life. And as usual, I get to around 25,000 words and I have to stop and look at what I've got and sketch out what is going to happen. And I've done that now. And I have kind of two A4 pages with a rough visual outline with the character arcs. And I know what's going on. So I pretty much know what is going to happen with the book. I just need to turn that into words. So that is going to happen in the next couple of weeks. I'm determined, well, I have to finish the first draft and the first edit in before the end of September. So that's my plan. I've also had some personal time in the last uh, week with my family. It's a long weekend here in the UK, bank holiday weekend, and I've been seeing my siblings and my nieces uh, while still maintaining physical distancing as much as possible. We still live in weird times after all, but it's been so nice. We haven't all seen each other since Christmas. So, and I'm the eldest of five and there's partners and kids and my dad and my stepmom and the whole thing was, it was great. Really enjoyed it. So good to see family. I also wanted to comment on the final episode of the Writers Well podcast with Jay Thorne and Rachel Heron. I know many of you are listeners to that show and I've been listening to their show since they started it and I always have enjoyed listening to Jay and Rachel discussing various 
questions about being a writer. Now, they have just ended the show after 190 episodes, and Jay made a comment about making space for something new to emerge. And although I am not ending this podcast, I am definitely thinking about many of the things that I can cut out of my life in order to make room for new things. And I have been thinking about this and talking about this for a while now. And I imagine a lot of you are going through the same thing. So even if you've never listened to the Writers Well podcast, it's actually a very interesting episode to listen to in order to see what happens when something ends. And this is a choice to end. It is We are deciding to end this, not for any negative reason, but in order to make room for the positive. And that is a very good reason to end something. Because let's face it, the pandemic has made us all question what's really important and also question the things we thought were set in stone. For example, my writing routine. I thought I could never write at this desk in my office here for fiction. I thought I had to be at another desk. I thought I had to be somewhere else. If you listen to old interviews with me, you'll hear me say that. But I've had to change my habits and it's worked fine. And what I've also discovered is that my desire to get away, which I call my itchy foot, you know, the itchy foot syndrome, the need to leave and be away. I find that the more I am here, the less I have to do that. And of course, I will travel when I can. But I am much more content now than I was a few months ago at the beginning of the lockdown period. And I was very much discombobulated. I mean, we all were. But I feel like I found a lot more contentment. And I talked about this in my personal episode about Bath on the Books and Travel podcast, which uh, is my recent episode, my personal episode, that by staying still for a bit, I've actually put down roots as if, you know, I'm a tree. You can't keep moving a tree. It can't keep put, it doesn't have time to put down roots. And this is very new for me. I feel like this is strange. i I'm really happy in one place. (laughs) I don't feel the need to run off and do other things. And I'm actually thinking much more about books and stories set here in England and at a very different pace to which I've used to do. So yeah, very weird. I mean, other habits like going to the gym. I saw my trainer, my personal trainer over Zoom twice a week since March and it's been great. And I'm getting 90% of the benefit for 50% of the price and half the amount of time as I don't need to travel in to the place. So I feel like, wow, I've changed my habits in a way that has been really beneficial. And I mean, eating, we have simplified our eating. We go to the local butchers. We've just simplified so many things that and we've been out a few times to support local businesses and and stuff uh, but I it's very interesting when you simplify your life down to eating simple food walking being content with where you are being happy that you're safe creating writing and I'm not even doom scrolling really I do some days but uh, do you mind if you've been listening uh, earlier on in the pandemic, I was like, I find myself doom scrolling, reading article after article about how awful everything is. And oh, just, and you just, I've stopped doing that. I mean, I do read the headlines once a day, I do stay informed, but mainly I'm just living my simple life and that is making me pretty happy. So I hope that you have found time to do that too. And obviously there are people listening in over 200 countries <laughs> and every person will have a different experience of what the last five to six months have been like. It's not over yet, obviously. And a lot of people are struggling and maybe you are. And a lot of people 
are not struggling and maybe you are and it's very interesting how this has affected people. So whatever you're going to through, uh, maybe actively think about it, write about it, think about how things have changed, think about how you might keep aspects of that in whatever the new normal is, because certainly things here are moving into a new normal very much so. Think about what has changed for the good as well as the bad. And uh, we're living through a historic time and not just the pandemic, but also the Black Lives Matter things, the various... Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on right now that feels quite historic. It feels like a pivot year in so many ways. And who knows which way things are going to pivot. But we might talk about this for the rest of our lives. It might be one of those years that will always remember. So yeah, what were you doing in 2020? And what will you be talking about in the years to come? So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Sam Eggbori says, my daily walks are listening to your podcast. Thank you. And sent a gorgeous picture of a boardwalk and a blue sky. Just look lovely. Thank you, Sam. Julie Schooler says, you outdid yourself on your podcast interview questions this episode and the bear book sounds fascinating. Thanks, Julie. And yeah, I just asked the questions that I have in my brain. That I, I figure if, if a question comes up in my brain, it'll be a question that you guys have. So uh, I do hope that after after as many episodes as I've done now, I am getting reasonably good at interviewing. So <laughs> glad you enjoyed it. Joel, who says, I love this week's podcast as somebody who stumbled into writing late as a way of coping through personal hardship. Hearing Matt talk about his career method and motivation was inspiring. It made me want to leap for the keyboard. Thank you. And Joel sent a lovely picture of himself with his son in a pushchair. So thank you for that. Lovely to see you. Lewis or Louis on YouTube said that was a really great interview. He brought up a whole lot of things I'd never considered before. I found this really helpful and he seems like such a cool guy. Great show. Yeah, fantastic. Really happy. And then just a couple more. Patricia McLean. Hi, Pat. We've met uh, over at Nink and in London, actually, last time. Listening to the show. Love the quote by Michael Brent Collings. 30 plus years in this business. I did one of those. That's the truth. Choking laughs. And Michael Brent said, if your goal is to feel good all the time and sell books all the time, you're screwed. <laughs> Which is true. I've I've only, in quotation marks, been doing this, what, 12 years? I guess 16 years I've been writing, but 12 years actively with a business. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's the truth. And then finally, Katrina Hoover-Lee says, I usually get inspired by your writing advice on the podcast, but today I was also inspired to make pastes de nata, which are the lovely custard tarts. I found a recipe and they turned out nicely over here in Elkhart, Indiana, and sent pictures of lovely Portuguese tarts. That's because last week I was saying about how crunchy they are and sweet and lovely. So mm, I think we're all coming to your place, Katrina. <laughs> So you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N, leave a comment on the show notes or on the YouTube channel, email me joanna at thecreativepen.com. Let me know what you think of the show and always send me a picture of where you're listening in from. I really appreciate them. And obviously I can't mention everybody every time, but I do love to see them. And I, I am managing as of talked about you know I'm managing pretty much all my own stuff again now except for Alexandra who is still my wingman wingwoman <laughs> helping me with the show but yes you can email me or whatever 
Right, so today's show is sponsored by Reedsy. Do you need a cover designer? Do you need an editor? What about some marketing help or an author website or a translator? Would you like to work with a vetted professional who understands about working with authors? If yes, then check out Reedsy through my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash Reedsy, R-E-E-D-S-Y. Have a look at their marketplace of vetted professionals, as well as the free Reedsy book editor, which will help you format your books, their free list of book bloggers by genre, super useful, as well as online courses, free online courses on everything from Facebook and Amazon ads to writing different genres, creating audiobooks, how to get media coverage, how to write query letters if you want a publisher and more. Basically, they have a ton of great free resources for your author career and can match you with professional freelancers to help with your author journey. So check out Reedsy through my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash Readsy. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. I really appreciate as it, especially in these difficult times. Thanks to new and returning patrons this week, including Shelley Baird, Leo Williams, Paul A. Ardoin, Tyrell, Danielle Matheson Pedersen, and Holly Ray Garcia. I really do appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates that you find the show useful and want it to continue. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month, less than a coffee a month or a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous. You'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio, 10% off my online courses, and you'll get uh, some private chat going on. (laughs) And uh, you can support the show at patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Len Edgeley is a non-fiction author with degrees in business and poetry. He's also the host of the long-running Kindle Chronicles podcast, where he has interviewed Jeff Bezos, Margaret Atwood and Dean Koontz, among many others. Welcome, Len. Hello, good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and why you decided to start a podcast about Kindle back in 2008. I first heard what a podcast was about three years before that, 2005, and I had retired at that point, so I I had my time to explore different things, and I found a conference in Banff, Canada, uh, with the great title Blogs and Dogs, and it was all about blogging, and for your registration fee, you got to go on a dog sled ride, so that was enough to get me up to Banff, and at the opening reception, there were these guys quite a bit younger than I was holding handheld recorders and recording us at the reception. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're making a podcast. I said, what is a podcast? And that's where I just the hair on my head stood up when I realized that they were making these recordings and could very easily get them on the internet. And I made my first podcast that night from my room at the hotel, and I called it Audiopod Chronicles for some reason, and I just was fascinated by it. So I spent about three years learning about microphones. I think I was probably using Audacity at that point, and I was just talking to people, but mainly I was learning about podcasts. When the Kindle showed up in 2007. So the Kindle showed up as the topic that I thought I could probably 
talk about once a week for a very long time because I had always been so interested in gadgets. And also I had been a journalist. I uh, had been a business reporter at a newspaper in Rhode Island. And then I was editor of an energy magazine in Wyoming. And so when this thing showed, and, and before the Kindle, I fell in love with the rocket book and I made a fool of myself saying, this is going to change everything, this rocket book here. And I <laughs> hold it up at a meeting and I, I get a little burned by that because the rocket book didn't uh, change everything. But when the Kindle came along, it looked like it might. So I just said, I bet I can talk about this Kindle thing from the point of view of readers and maybe writers and technology. I wasn't so much into Amazon at that time, and that kind of uh, emerged over the time. But it, it by 2008, July, here at this same cottage that I'm talking to you at from the coast of Maine, at this desk is where I did the first, issue, first uh, episode, I just thought, I think I can really love talking about this. And 12 years later, that really turned out to be a, a good instinct. And uh, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I started it, and I'm glad I stuck with it. That's so funny. I don't even know what the Rocket Book is. Was that a similar e-reader yeah. or was it like a mobile device? Or Well, it was, it was very similar. It was very clunky and it had a, a hard-to-read screen and it uh, you had to plug it in to get content on it. But it had some of the basics. You could put 10 books on it. Imagine that, Ooh. putting 10 books on, on a device. Seems crazy now, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. uh, that's so interesting and you picked the right one in the end but so looking back then so it's been 12 years over 12 years I I guess now what are the most significant changes you've seen in terms of the Kindle environment and also the publishing industry over that time when I look back I think that the uh, introduction of the iPad in 2010 and the legal action that prompted against Apple and I think the big six publishers at that time that was big because it really set the environment for pricing ebooks by the traditional publishers and at a much higher level than Amazon had intended when they said that bestsellers were going to be priced at $9.99. And in the aftermath, even though Apple and the publishers lost the legal battle, they were able to arrange contracts with Amazon that were based on agency pricing, and and they've been setting the the prices for eBooks, in my opinion, at an unreasonably high level ever since. And as somebody who loves reading books by all publishers, that still irritates me. But I swallow hard and pay fifteen, sixteen dollars uh, for a book that I really want to read. But I think the opportunity there was by pricing artificially high it left a lot of room for self-publishing to emerge just by pricing reasonably. And it also gave quite a runway for Amazon publishing to take off because they've been gathering increasingly prominent writers, including Dean Koontz, and pricing their books at what I consider to be reasonable prices. And I don't know if I have met this in another 12 years, is Amazon publishing going to be one of the big four? I think the growth of Amazon publishing has been pretty phenomenal. You mentioned um, pricing. One of the big things that's changed, obviously, is the subscription model with Kindle Unlimited. What impact do you think that has had? And is subscription on digital devices the the way it's going to go? I agree with you. I've heard you say that seems to be the way forward. And I, I would agree with it. I think that the barrier to it at this point is that the big publishers are not participating in Kindle Unlimited. So if you sign up for that, you get increasingly good choices, but it isn't 
really a test of what it would look like if we could just sign on somewhere, maybe for quite a bit more than $10 a month, and have that kind of access to everything. Uh, I, I, I like it. I buy a lot of books just title by title, and I, I guess I'm agnostic on it as one reader, but I do see the trans with Audible's subscription, and there's more and more things that I pay on a regular basis to have access to, and there's some convenience there, and it's probably help for business models of people that are providing the content. I, I think that's probably the, the way forward. And then in the device itself, and you've said you're a, a, a gadget guy, I had one of the early international Kindles, this sort of white thing with the buttons on it. Yes. It wasn't touchscreen back then. There were buttons. You had to mm-hmm. type type on it. And now the devices uh, are obviously quite different. I have a paperweight now. But some people say that people are using, like you mentioned, the iPad or I read on my phone on the Kindle app. And of course, then we've also got the Nook, we've got Kobo devices. So what what are your thoughts on the device versus people using other devices to read? I've been surprised at how much Amazon uh, continues to invest on the Kindle platform, the e-ink readers, because I'm sure that you and I are similar, that I read a lot on my iPad, my phone, I have a a Fire tablet. I, I, I read much less on my Oasis than I did 10 years ago. So I think if this was just another device that Amazon you wouldn't be seeing new versions of it come out on a regular basis. And you wouldn't see the kinds of improvements to the interface that on, on like page flip and different things that they just keep working on it. And I get the feeling there's a really big Kindle team at Amazon that acts like this is a new product and they just want to keep making it better. And I think that the reason that's the case, it relates to the two conversations I had with Jeff Bezos eight and four years ago, he is really a book guy. And when I was talking to him about different aspects of the Kindle and why is it important to have people reading long form reading, he, he was totally into it. And I think that as long as he's the CEO of the company, and at this point, he's embedded teams of people there who are just very missionary in their approach toward, let's have a device that's great at long-form reading, mainly books, but other long-form reading that you can't check your tweets on, you can't stray off, that when you curl up with it, it's more like a physical book than it is an iPad, because it's a, a confined garden that's suitable for just reading the words. There are things that could be improved. Jeff was talking about the pain points that continue to exist in the device, and one of them being the ability to annotate with something like a, a stylus. He, mm. I asked him, when you have these six-page memos at your meetings, are you reading them as the whole group is reading the memo on some new initiative that they're analyzing? How are you taking notes on it? He says, I take notes on it on paper, just because it seems more natural to me to write uh, on paper. But I think that's something that in the future, something like the Remarkable Tablet, I find really a nice way to annotate a PDF with with the stylus. It feels like paper. It doesn't have that glassy feel of an iPad. So I, I would expect there to be continuing evolutionary improvements in the Kindle, but a real commitment to having a device that really doesn't do anything else except long-form reading. 
I must say I only ever use my paper white in bed and I turn the screen resolution right down and, and I read on that ev- every night. I turn the light right down right. on it so it's dark. And I know you can do that on your phone and your other devices, but I do other things on my other devices. And as you <laughs> say, I, I like having the only choice is to read a book. That is yeah. what I'm doing. And I, I just cannot do anything else um, with that device. So I agree with you. I don't think it's going away, but then I feel like we are super big readers. And so we have different devices for different times. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now, so you mentioned Jeff Bezos and you've interviewed him a couple of times, which is Mm -hmm. pretty amazing because the man is not that available. (laughs) But (laughs) I mean, you mentioned there that he is a reader. What else struck you particularly about him that you think maybe the... does the media overhype him or what's interesting uh, about him? On a personal experience uh, level of him, I've interviewed a lot of people and I had the feeling that he was so intelligent that, that he was almost one nanosecond ahead of my thinking because he would have an answer immediately and like a well-formed answer so there was like this badminton feel uh, back and forth over a net of total engagement he showed up in this conference room on time and as if there wasn't anything else during his day more important than talking to this guy that's doing a podcast about the kindle every week i guess a presence and an intelligence and i i don't want to get too gushy about it but an empathy that I could see related to his love of books. And at one point he was talking about a book that he's talked about often. It's The Remains of the Day, Kazooie Ishiguro. That's the book that he read that prompted him to leave a Wall Street job and found Amazon because uh, I haven't read the book, but I was reading the blurb of it. It's about a butler who thinks Mm. back on his life and says, gee, did I really waste 30 years working for the old man? And he said he, the book gave him a, a chance to experience extreme regret in a way that he said, I hope I never experience in my own life. And so when he thought about the possibility of forming a company on the internet, which he really understood at that point, versus continuing to be a very wealthy, successful person on Wall Street. He said, when I'm 80, I know I'm going to regret it if I didn't at least give that a shot. I think for authors or, or people who you know, listen to your show and mine, someone who is informed in the way they make decisions in life by the books they've read and the ideas that they get from reading, that that I think is an aspect of him, which maybe doesn't break through so much in the, the coverage of his new girlfriend and all of the mm. other things that he's involved in. But one-on-one in person, he's, I found him a very humble, attentive, interesting person that obviously very bright, but it, it wasn't a weapon. It was just an aspect of his presence that I found very enjoyable. It's fascinating, isn't it? And uh, I certainly, I'm not exclusive to Amazon with my books. I believe in uh, competition. Uh, And so let's talk about that because you and I are both shareholders in Amazon. So we believe in uh, Jeff and the the company enough to put our money there, as well as being authors and we're podcasters. So we we have this mutual interest in the the wider company. I use Amazon S3 to to, uh, have some of my file hosting and things like that. But what we've seen as you and I record this last week was the hearing the antitrust hearing with the u.s congress 
interests that involved Amazon, Google, Apple and Facebook. And I feel like there before the uh, pandemic, there was this big tech backlash brewing on both sides of the political sphere in in the US. It was it really was both sides. So what are your thoughts on what might happen? Some people have said Amazon should be broken up, that S3 business, for example, should be spun out. And certainly some of the allegations that were talked about, well, not allegations, but some of the stuff around the third parties on the store and things like that for Amazon. What what do you think might happen? And will it all just fade away because we need these companies? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that the antitrust side is fascinating and important, and it's going to be very difficult to change the current rules of the road for antitrust. And and from the people I've spoken with, if there's no change in uh, the actual laws, it, it's going to be very difficult to successfully prosecute Amazon because the the existing antitrust rules from the 30s or whenever, all have to do with market power being used to raise prices to make decisions that hurt customers. Now, unless Amazon does a 180-degree turn, it, it's customer focus. It's it's always about low prices and, and, and all the things that they've done that have resulted in an 80% approval by customers and at the top of every survey of brand loyalty. So that doesn't mean that it's it, – it, I totally understand why the question is being brought up, though, because these companies are huge, and they have incredible impact on the society. And I noticed that the, the a lot of the current thinking about antitrust and Amazon came from a Yale Law Review article about three years ago, I think, maybe five years ago. Lin, Lena Khan, I think, is the name of the author, and she's now – on the staff of that antitrust subcommittee, and she was standing behind the chair of the committee as this was unfolding. I, I read that article, and it was impenetrable. It was academic. <laughs> it was very smart. But I got a feeling of how difficult it'll be to actually design an antitrust framework that fits these kinds of companies and how all the pieces work together and are you really going to help society versus and customers based on this theory i guess i would expect that it's probably not going to happen you're not going to see an antitrust breakup like was attempted with microsoft but that there will be pressure against Amazon. That hearing certainly sent Jeff Bezos a message. I bet some people, he had some un- unpleasant conversations with some of the people on that third-party marketplace. Uh, what's going on here? And then the big counterweight against these companies are each other. Amazon competes with Google and Microsoft in the cloud. Walmart is, that's a, a, a really, Walmart's twice the size in re- retail, and they're doing all the things online that Amazon does. So I would hope that a company like Amazon doesn't just think they can blow off the kind of moral concerns that are driving some of the support for these moves and that the government wouldn't make stupid, crude decisions in redesigning antitrust framework. And that even though there's just a few competitors, if, if they're good enough, they're going to keep each other honest within a kind of a constrained world, that it's probable that Amazon continues in something like it's current form, I would say, at least for the next 10 years and maybe longer. 
Jeff himself said, uh, I think it was the Charlie Rose interviews at 2013 or something, he said Amazon will be disrupted. Yeah, Um right. And he, he also noted that most companies do not last forever at the top. Exactly. And or I think he said something like, basically, he hopes it won't be in his lifetime. But <laughs> the, but even he, him himself, he's taking money out of Amazon in order to build his space right. company. And that seems to be the re- one of the, his drive. Oh, obviously, it's not the money at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is a bigger vision. So it's interesting to me because it seems like his focus is on the future and whatever it is it whatever it takes in order to achieve the star trek goal yeah. as long as there's money coming in to support this future goal i i don't know it, it feels like to me that that's the focus what what do you think these are all our personal opinions on looking at the media but yeah no i think there's plenty of evidence that, and i think I, I saw one quote of his a while back that he sees amazon.com as the lottery winning that is enabling him to pursue his vision of life in space and and creating an infrastructure so that a kid in a college dorm room can come up with a fantastic idea for uh, colonizing space the way he was able to come up with a fantastic idea for the internet because credit cards have been created and the whole internet structure was there for him to use. So I, I think that's a fair analysis. It leaves a, an interesting question, but there's a lot of talk about this fellow, Jeff Wilkie, who appears to fill in as an understudy for Jeff. At some point, I could easily imagine that Jeff turns the reins over to someone like Jeff Wilkie so that he can really work on Blue Origin. And once in a while, he has to turn his attention to the Washington Post, although he's clearly not involved in any of the editorial decisions, which you can tell by how how they cover Amazon. I think the, the toughest stories that I see anywhere are from the Washington Post reporters making it clear that they they're not they ruled by him. Yeah, they're, 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 there's not a lot of fear evident in how they cover Amazon. Yeah, it's interesting. But then I, I hadn't heard about that other, other Jeff. But it's interesting because many people, certainly the authors like me and people listening who publish on um, Amazon KDP, for example, we feel like the individuals who and we are customers of amazon because we all buy books but we're also customers in that we pay for advertising for example and the way that we're i feel many of us feel we're treated more like a rounding error because even though amazon started with books that's not where the lion's share of the money is in fact it it really is a tiny piece (laughs) so i guess the the concern there would be that if you were going to look at the company and you were going to break it up into other pieces then you would s3 would obviously is the thing that makes the money right not Mm -hmm. just s3 aws amazon web services is the money and then there's the the store and then and i think it was elizabeth warren who said if you own the store shouldn't be able to play in the store right and that kind of idea of you mentioned amazon publishing clearly play in the store that amazon also owns and they also use the advertising services they also presumably have access to data if if things were to be broken up i would see that books would not be safe as such not be safe in in what way 
Well, for example, if let's say Elizabeth Warren's I don't know what her potential is in in the future of politics, but she she seems there are other people who feel that same way. But if you were to say, if you own the store, you can't play in the store, then does that mean Amazon Publishing would have to be sold to another publishing house? Or does that mean authors who publish in KDP would now have to be part of some other entity? And these are all, again, people listening. These are just ideas. We're just talking about ideas. Yeah. But what do you think about that? It, It does seem that sometimes they have the advantage. I've never heard anybody suggest that Amazon Publishing gets any kind of a advantaged break at Amazon.com. And one thing I've noticed is that the Amazon book editors that put out the best 20 books of the year, uh, there's absolutely no favoritism for Amazon publishing uh, evident there. And uh, I, I just don't see that. I think it'd be really stupid if they were making that mistake. And, and if Amazon publishing, uh, by innovating. And I think one great thing about Amazon publishing is the amount of translation it's doing. At this point, it's mm. it, it brings more kind of mainstream novels from around the world into English than and probably the rest of the big publishers combined. And they're re- redoing the relationships with authors. Dean Koontz talks about having and published traditionally for so long. He said, all of these people are so young and they're so excited. And I just feel like I have a new lease on life by working for this publisher. So I think that if it was to be, I probably, if it got broken up, it would exist on its own. I think if it became part of Random House, I would just be completely devastated. I think that's not the end of the story I was hoping for because I, I think that it's good to have competition to the traditional big publishers just like it's good to have competition against amazon and at this point amazon publishing is like a scrappy startup that's coming in and innovating and doing things which i think have some merit as i'm talking i'm I'm thinking i'm digging myself a deeper hole here because more about the what it's like to like the exclusivity of kdp select I can imagine that's really a problem. And I guess as a reader and as somebody who talks about Amazon from the point of view mainly of readers, I i don't see problems that I bet you see more accurately than I do. And that's why I need to keep listening to you. <laughs> I think it is interesting. But as you say, um, Amazon is all about the customer experience. And as a reader, I'm they got me early I was also I'm not so much a gadget person but I'm definitely a reader and I was living in Australia uh, back sort of 2008 2009 and the only option were incredibly expensive print books like print books are so expensive in Australia and I was desperate for an e-reader and the Sony reader was was the only option and then I couldn't get one and then the Kindle hit and I was like I was on the waiting list Scott was one of the first people (laughs) to get one in Australia and I was sold so they got me on day one and of course the more you buy books on on the Kindle, it's very hard to change devices later on in your life because yeah. all your whole library's there and they know me so well. So I'm as I'm a very happy customer of Amazon in so many ways, and yet it's good and healthy to have other 
people in the ecosystem. So uh, I appreciate your point of view. What, so let's think more about the, the the future then, because one of the another big change that has happened is, in the last twelve years is the rise of of audiobooks, and of course, mm-hmm. Audible uh, really I think have been responsible, like they were with with Kindle. Audible has brought audiobooks to everyone's phones, and now a lot more companies are coming into the space. But in some markets now, audiobooks are selling more than ebooks. So what do you think about audiobooks and what are your thoughts on the sort of future of reading? I, I don't have time to listen to audiobooks as much as I, I used to and I don't have a commute and I'm you know I haven't driven the car more than a hundred miles in the last month <laughs> or so. But it's powerful and I think that it's satisfying to some extent because I think as you pointed out when we talked last the the literature has its roots in oral traditions and to have wonderful writing and storytelling move to that platform partly out of the convenience of what it's like to be, be leading modern my, lives that just seems like a wonderful coming full circle the part that intrigues me as well are things that are audio first that you're getting I heard a a wonderful thing on Audible that was James Taylor, a singer I really uh, love over here in the states, and it was a it was a biography autobiography, but he was playing some music, and it was taking advantage of all the different ways to tell his story in a way that it just wouldn't have been anywhere as rich on the page, and even as the audible version of a written book that they had created this thing to take advantage of what you could do to tell the story of a musician's life. I think it, it's hard for me to see the future of Alexa as, as part of this, that the, uh, the ability added to your shopping uh, list. Okay. <laughs> I forgot to turn her off in time, but you've got interaction possibilities. You've got uh, chain link stories, and that's going to be another place where the, the power of telling stories audio is going to unfold, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll just call her the device. The device, uh, I think, is more that it's going to be embedded in a lot of things. So embedded in your car, the one you have there in the room is a smart speaker. But I, I see the future for these kind of AI assistants. They're just in the things they're in your phone and I wear the watch and I have the Siri (laughs) and the different devices that we talk to to actually get the things we want to listen to so I had um, laser eye surgery last year and when I was in bed with my eyes closed I can just ask the device to play an audiobook for example Mm. so I think uh, I see those as more almost stitching together the digital experience between the domains that we move so in that way rather than that's in that assistant kind of model i think you see what i mean yeah yeah they're pulling pieces together that are there they're just not connected mm. and, and when we think of friction that's a term that bezos uses a lot how do you reduce the the friction in in reading i i, I think that that's going to be solved that we're going to be able to almost think of a book and say i wish what's the name of that book i read in high school and the next thing that's on my kindle and on my Alexa, as opposed to the effort to find things that sometimes are hard to find. Mm, No, absolutely. And I think uh, as the system knows more about us, that is one of the wonderful things about the recommendation engine that I appreciate. It's being able to know what I'm interested in. And it's ridiculous how much money I spend on buying books because they're just like, oh, you might like this. Oh, yes, I would. Thank you very much. Yeah. How did you know that? (laughs) 
Yes, I'll have that too. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, it is funny. So I wanted to just pivot into podcasting. Things have changed a lot again since you and I started our podcasts. Mm. And I feel like even in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Spotify have got Michelle Obama and right. they, they spent a hundred million on Joe Rogan. We've got one of the, was it even the New York Times has just bought a podcast uh, mm-hmm. studio. We've got publishers now starting podcast studios. Do you think suddenly the era of podcasting has happened and and yeah what what are your thoughts on on what's happening in podcasting it does seem that those are significant things that have happened and a few years ago was the serial uh, podcast which i think introduced the power of uh, podcast to a lot of people i guess my only caution is i can remember going to conferences 10 years ago where people were saying podcasting is just about to be the era that's going to be the same as radio. And there's been this kind of ever receding bonanza to predictions of it. But meanwhile, more and more people are listening to podcasts. And there's, I'm sure the facts would show that it's creeping into everyone's consciousness. I think it's another place where that friction concept applies, because in the car, I can listen to my podcast or I was listening to your podcast driving around uh, this week, but it's, it's not so easy. I should be looking at the road and not tapping on the screen of the Tesla to try to figure out how to find the podcast I'm looking for ease of access to the shows. And there'll certainly be improvements in that that'll make it more ubiquitous. I think the other thing which intrigues me is the ease of making a podcast is create so many opportunities. I was experimenting with a platform called Anchor. I think it might be owned by Spotify. It is, yeah. They bought it, yeah. Yeah. It's just dropped dead easy. I I set it up on my iPhone, and I was doing some work for a candidate here, Mayor Pete, that was in the primaries. And I went to an event in New Hampshire, and I was recording what he was saying, and I did some kind of comments on it. And in my car, I assembled an episode of this podcast I called Edgecast, included a picture that I'd taken of him. And before I left the event to head back to the cottage in Maine, the episode was on the air. And I I just thought, this is amazing. And maybe my grandson, who's 14 years old, is going to be having podcasts. The sort of personalization of the the creation of the audio, uh, great opportunities for commercially scaled podcasts that we're seeing. But I wonder if there's this whole other layer of kind of personal podcasts that you share with 10 friends, or you have some way to communicate with each other as the friction on the creation side gets less and less. That's really interesting. I must say that I think Spotify... Uh, I I used to listen to Apple podcasts and I've moved my listening over to Spotify because I just find their, again, their recommendation algorithm and their search is just incredible. And that to me has been the issue with podcasts. You have to hear about them by word of mouth. Whereas Spotify are going to recommend different shows. And also you can search if I'm interested in a particular topic, I can use the search bar. And Apple has improved that a bit, but they're definitely, they, I think they gave up the ball as such. And Spotify are just running with the ball now and making big plays. So it's really interesting that you say that about Anchor, because of course, Spotify own it. And when you create on Anchor, you don't, I think you have to allow monetization of it or something it's it is owned by spotify right it's not an independent network 
Right. I, yeah, I don't have any ads coming on my version of it, so I think there's a way to, to do it just putting it up for free and having it available. It is. I think it's a really interesting idea. And my thought with Spotify is that perhaps that they will get into audiobooks in the next couple of years because all the statistics show that if you listen to audiobooks, you probably definitely listen to podcasts. And if you listen to podcasts, then you are on your way to audiobooks. Makes sense. Yeah, in that way. And then just coming back to you before we finish up. So in podcasting so long, what is your... Why are you still doing it? Why do you still love it? And uh, are you going to keep going? <laughs> the, the Kindle Chronicles had a near-death experience just a couple of weeks ago. I was, I was approaching the uh, 12th anniversary of the first show, and then I'm going to be 70 in this month. And I thought, well, that's enough. I've, I've had a good run. <laughs> and I actually was starting telling people that I, I think I'm going to just stop doing this. And my wife, Darlene, said, that's the stupidest thing you've said recently. Why would you give up something that is such a joy to you and my father who's 93 had a, a similar but gentler uh, reaction to it so I, I i pulled back from the the brink and part of it was i was hoping i was going to get a chance to talk to jeff bezos again because i thought we're on a four-year cycle every time i have a cell an anniversary i'm going to talk to jeff and i had submitted my request and he had a pretty busy week testifying in front of Congress and everything. So it's, it's not surprising <laughs> he didn't have time for my little podcast, but it left me wanting to proceed maybe under a freer sense of not quite so Amazon focused or centric or, and I might talk a little bit more about my politics on the show, something I've always resisted because I, I have some very loyal listeners that are very conservative. And But having almost given up the show, I feel like I have a lot of freedom with what I do with it. And I can imagine I'll keep doing it until the next... Anniversaries are tough. I, I, I think every time I come up with the... 700th show or 20 years there's going to be a, a moment of saying that may be enough so I, I just have to grit my teeth and get through them and I hope I'm still doing this when I'm in my 90s <laughs> well it's funny I just uh, this week was my 500th anniversary I saw that. congratulations uh, yeah, thank you and obviously I'm behind you because I didn't go weekly at the beginning I moved to weekly a few years in so uh, I'm definitely behind you but it's similar amount of time uh, yeah. elapsed but it's funny, it was this kind of the same thing. It's like 500. That's a really good number. And have I said everything I want to say? And then you think, oh, I could go to, if I go to, I could go to 600. I like committing to, um, and 600 is about two years, right? About, yeah, 100 episodes is about two years. And you think, yeah, I can see my, I, I have more to talk about here. So I'm glad that you're feeling the same way. And also that your family encouraged you because I feel like some people just see it as a waste of time in inverted commas, but there's yeah. a lot to be gained, isn't there, from these conversations? Oh, absolutely. I, I, that, that to me is the, the most exciting thing to, and like you, I prepare a lot for an interview. And so that's pleasurable to just immerse myself in someone's work. And then the, the excitement as the curtain goes up and the mic goes on and I'm talking to somebody from anywhere in the world. It's that never gets old. Oh, fantastic. Where can people find you and your podcast online? Uh, it's pretty simple, just thekindlechronicles.com, and I'm on all the podcast uh, sites. I've got an archive of writing I've done on the internet that goes back uh, quite a ways at lenedgerly.com, so those are the main places. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Len. That was great. Ah, oh, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Joanna. 
So I hope you found the interview with Len interesting. And of course, the situation with big tech will continue to evolve, especially as the US political landscape continues to change. Uh, Both sides of the political fence in the US have issues with big tech. So there are likely changes ahead, whoever wins in November. And uh, the pandemic has made these companies more important than ever. So we certainly live in interesting times. Also interesting is Len mentioned Jeff Wilkie, one of the key executives, and The Verge report on 21st of August 2020 that Wilkie is planning to retire in the first quarter of 2021. Time for me to take time to explore personal interests that have taken a back seat for over two decades. So that's interesting. Next week, I'm talking to Emily Kimmelman, who writes mysteries and fantasy. And we have a fascinating chat about writing while traveling, rebooting a career while having kids. Plus, we talk about ambition, which is something I'm always fascinated with because my ambition ebbs and flows and uh, is It doesn't stay static. And we talk about working towards being a seven-figure author, which is something very few authors get to, at least on an annual basis. But it's definitely an aspirational goal. So we talk about ambition and money and writing and all kinds of things. So I think you'll find it interesting. So that's coming up next week. Happy writing. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.